1: Hello, and welcome to New Books and Sports, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Keith Rathbun, and I'm coming to you live from Macquarie University, actually for, for real this time, not at my house, but at my work. And I am here today speaking with the author of a, a killer new book, and one that I think is going to uh, be of much interest to people interested in, uh, especially kind of critical theory in sports. Uh, this is Shannon Walsh. She's an associate professor of theater history at Louisiana State University. And the book is Eugenics and Physical Culture Performance. Uh, pardon me, Eugenics and Physical Culture Performance in the Progressive Era. Watch Whiteness Workout. It's out from Paul Grave McMillan in 2020. Uh, thank you for joining me, Shannon.
0: Thank you, Keith.
1: Shannon, I wanted to, uh, of course, kind of reiterate that I, I really love this book. It's I interview a lot of people for the podcast, um, talk to a lot of sports, um, people in sports studies, mostly in sports history. But it's rare to find such critical engagement. Uh, so that was really refreshing. Um, and I kind of had to brush up myself a bit, I, you know, thinking back to my poor yeah. guy. <laughs> But I, I I wonder, Shannon, if you can tell us a bit how you, de- you developed this project. Like, what what uh, what brought you to studying sport um, and physical cult? I should say physical culture rather. Um, when you're a professor of theater history.
0: <laughs> Sweet, thanks, Keith. Yeah, um, um, there's two sort of. Uh, stories, um, about, about that. You talk about it being, you know, historical. I don't, I think I'm an accidental historian and now I, I love being a historian, but, um, uh, uh, so that story is that, you know, I had really planned, this is, this is a revision and expansion of my dissertation work. And I had planned for my dissertation, um, in grad school at the University of Minnesota to actually be on on fan cultures I was I was all gung ho on writing about American American football fan cultures and um I had my sites and I had already done uh you know extensive research and an annotated bibliography and and I was super excited about it um and then for uh, I took a 19th century history class because I was in a uh, the program I was in was theater historiography, even though, again, uh, I kept thinking, like, why am I in this program when I don't think I'm actually a historian or a historiographer? Uh, and I I went into um, I found an archive on campus. We had to find, you know, I had to write a seminar paper and I found out that um there was a YWCA archive, uh, on campus. And I was like, cool, I, I haven't done archival research before. I'm going to go check this out. Um, and I found, um, like I found Abby Mayhew, who, who is the, the subject of my, um, uh, uh one of the chapters in my book. And I sort of like got a, like hardcore historian crush on her. Um, and I, and I was like, you know, I think, I think I think I might I might really want to write about this she and I talk about this a little bit in the book um, you know, she, she was from Wisconsin and, and, and moved to Minnesota and, uh, she reminded me of my grandmother, uh, right. They, and they were sort of in the same, you know, overlapped a little bit. And, um, so then I, I got a little bit of archive fever and found, you know, went and, uh, researched Dudley Allen Sargent at Harvard, um, and then did some uh, research at the H. J. Lucher Stark Archives at the University of Texas Austin and just sort of really caught that that bug <laughs> of of historical research and, and and that's 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 where this landed. But but like the interesting part is that I I as I said I really wanted to do sort of theoretical digging in into my work to begin with. And the way that I found sports is that is, is weird, uh, and fabulous. I'm a huge sports fan. Um, and so, and I, and I, my husband is, is, is a, is a jock. Um, and so we would watch sports together and I played fantasy American football and, um, and, uh, I got really frustrated when I was a master's student cause I was watching American football and they had just made the change to allow women sports broadcasters from the sideline and when they first you know had women on the sidelines of of you know NFL games they were they did not look like they belonged there they were in dresses and heels and they put them in pastels and and i was like you know if you if if NFL really wants to get you know more women watching their games this is not this is not the way to do it um and so and so I wrote my master's thesis um, on how the male gaze, G-A-Z-E, operates in sports um, because because I found myself as a as a woman sports fan trying to enjoy sports, but having to read against the grain that was being offered and. Uh, and so, and so that's really where um, that sort of spectatorship uh, uh, in theater and sports kind of overlapped for me um, to begin with. And it's just uh, gotten, I've just expanded my love for both of those things and how performance theory can really help deepen the way that we think about sports um, since then.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the introduction of your book in particular is really um, kind of, rich for people who are interested in sports studies because it's, like I say, it's rare that you get um, people who are interested in critical theory, writing in clear ways about how, you know, maybe people beyond Foucault are in, are interesting for us. Um, but also the other thing I really, well, I ever, I think, you know, a fair number of people kind of, like in myself, like I, I'm, I'm complaining about myself, I think, uh, but a fair number of people are interested in kind of biopolitics or governmentality, but um, don't use them in quite as precise ways as you do. But the other thing I really liked about your um, your introduction and in, and in many of the introductions to your chapters is that you kind of mentioned it in when you're just talking about that kind of self-reflectiveness that you have, um, where you kind of frame out, you're like, I'm writing a, hist- a kind of a history of the progressive era, but then you start beginning of the book and the end of the book in the now and so you get a a real sense that what you're saying about the progressive era actually matters now (laughs) um and and you know that there's this kind of reflexiveness about the archives like when you're talking about um uh abby uh mayhew you're you're like you do mention you're like i i fell i don't think you called it a crush but you did say like you that you're you know you fell in love with her as a subject and then Uh, you realize like maybe later oh, she's maybe there's a lot of problems with this and critical (laughs) theory helps you get there yeah 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 yeah. i
0: really
1: i also i guess you know um well my first question is how did you get away with getting to have so much critical theory in your book (laughs) no um so i guess what when you got interested in the way critical theory could be an avenue into understanding sports studies like how did you start with Foucault or did you start with Bourdieu or was it, you know, you're like, actually, I love uh, Butler, Judith Butler and performativity got me in there. So I just kind of wonder how you, how you did it. Did you come to sports first or was it, was it, you were always a critical theory nerd. And as soon as you started taking these one theory, you realized, oh, I can use so many actually.
0: Oh yeah. No, I don't, I don't, I don't, I think again, in the same way that I, that I feel like I was a sort of, an accidental historian, I feel like I'm, I'm a reluctant Foucauldian. <laughs> um, that that uh, my, my advisor, um, um, you know, was really keen on, and, and really, and, and I'm so thankful for it, right, was really keen on, like, I think biopolitics and governmentality are really, are really, crucial for you. And, you know, as a grad student, you, you read it and you're like, oh my gosh, yes, this is everything that, you know, the way that he's talking about how biopolitics functions and how governmentality functions and looking at my sites. I was just like, oh my gosh, it's all over the place. Um, but, you know, there's one. It's one thing to do what my like my master's uh, advisor, Carrie Sandal, used to call "granimals." Granimals is this like Walmart brand that you know you can that helps kids like pick out the right top and the right bottom, so they would put like the animals in the tags, so that the kid could go and be like, "Oh, I need to pick out two bears for a top and a bottom," and that so that the granimals approach is like wow, this theory says a lot about my site, Um, ta-da! But I, I I really struggled trying to get beyond that and to also talk about why I think it matters. And I think that what is valuable in Foucault is that Foucault is always talking about what was the now for him, right? You know, he's 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 writing about the clinic, the birth of the clinic, and he's never he's never saying I'm going to give you a history of the clinic and why it's so terrible, right? What what's powerful, I think, about Foucault for me is that he's always bringing it back to do you see the way that this structure is now embedded and how we think of this and, and, it, and that these systems and structures, then because they're so long, because it's taken so long for them to become embedded, because we don't even recognize them anymore, that's why it's so difficult to change them and to, and to overturn them, which I think is useful. Um, but I think too that, right, that to a certain extent foucault foucault is like whatever we can't get out of it right <laughs> like there's, there's there's we're stuck in this mire and you know i i think there are ways that we can get out but at the end of the day you know he's 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 pretty skeptical that that we can make those changes which is where i think it's interesting because Right. Judith Butler and the idea of performativity is sort of where I started, but she isn't huge in my, in my, in my books. I rely so much more on Foucault. What's interesting is that the work that I'm doing now, I'm returning to Butler um, in part because Butler is also starting to like really talk more in terms of, of bio, biopolitics um, uh, so I've I've been turning a lot more to 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 her and um, Achille Mbembe, Bembe, uh, which which I think um, is sort of where especially now, <laughs> right with with sort of the the place that the world is, which is not where it was. This is a dumb thing to say, but it's not where it was when I first when I wrote this book. Um, but biopolitics just now are even more important and if I had known that when I was writing this or when I was writing my dissertation that eugenics would somehow make its way back into the zeitgeist of the way in which we talk about the world on a regular basis I would have I would have been like no way but here we are
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah well it certainly I I've taught um kind of you know governmentality and biopolitics for a a fair while now. And now if you ask students to point out examples of biopolitics, it's like, uh, really? (laughs) Like our whole life, (laughs) everything. (laughs) Um, So it is kind of, it is, it does reshape the way in which at least my teaching practices happen. Uh, So I want to turn now to kind of the content of the book and I just will point out for people who haven't read it, there are these framing chapters um, kind of at the beginning and the end intros, conclusions, but the body of it are five um, chapters uh, that happen in the progressive era. And most of them are, are I would say, um, centered around a single figure um, that provide a kind of hinge for understanding other things that are going on. But they, they all have a kind of underpinning, uh, which is that there's a kind of overarching thing that maybe you, I think you're trying to say that physical, uh, culturists are doing in the progressive era. And so I'm wondering if you can tell us kind of just broadly and overall, um, what, what does for your, at least for your book, what is the physical, um, what is the, what do physical culturists do in the progressive era? Like what is their underlying and major goal? How does this connect to questions of whiteness and of gender, uh, that you, that you tease out so well in all of your chapters? Oof, that's a lot. I know, it's um, a big so- question. It's kind of a <laughs> big, you know, what's the, I guess I'm asking what the thesis of your book is, no, but <laughs> in an awkward way. No.
0: Yeah, 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 no, I, no, I, I, yes, yes, um, so I, so I think that, that ultimately, from, from the, perspective of these physical culturists, they were by and large interested in reform. They were really, um, um, I wish if I could go back and retitle my book, it would be in the reform era, because that's they're they're really interested in reform. And they're really interested in the sort of the, the central crux of you know, post-industrial revolution, everybody's living in the cities. Everybody is working their bodies in ways that are is not are is no longer um, healthy, <laughs> right? That that uh, uh, like human bodies are are changing because of the the w- kinds of work that people are trying to do in the cities, and so um, I think that overall you know regardless of gender that that these physical culturists were 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 in, invested in you know what does it look like to sort of come into a city and do this kind of reform work with specific populations now <laughs> um i think that the that overall that's what they were all invested in i think that the three figure the four figures that i talk about well, the Delsart chapter is a little funky, but um, uh, uh, do that in, in various ways. And also, um, you know, are invested in that project in different ways. For example, like I would say that, you know, is was Bernard McFadden really interested in reform or was he interested in sort of highlighting and forwarding his own brand? Um, I think he was interested in highlighting and and sort of, selling books and like making money, but also, I mean, he wrote thousands of pages of material about physical culture. And so if that was just about his own brand, you know, I, I think, you know, he wasn't, he, he's, he's kind of framed as like the PT Barnum of physical culture. And I think that there's more to him than that. Um, But, you know, I think that like Dudley Allen Sargent was uh, who was at Harvard, he was the physical director at Harvard uh, uh, at the beginning of the 20th century um, was supremely interested was particularly interested in in women um and that and and that's sort of the the central focus right is that there was this big issue in the progressive era about women all suddenly wanting to go to college and there was still a lot of medical quackery out there that suggested that You know, when women went into college and started thinking that all of the energy that was supposed to be in their reproductive organs got sucked up to their heads and then, oh oh my gosh, then they're not going to, you know, make babies. And ah. so I think that this was a fix. I think that physical culture in colleges in particular, in women's colleges, was seen as a fix to what was viewed as a real problem, the problem of women going to college. Um, So so I think that, you know, and and if it wasn't in college, the other side of this, right, is that the influx of young women into cities in order to get to do work. And so like the YWCA was very much invested in trying to create communities of women in the cities that that they were in to sort of help protect women um, and the YWCA was very open about you know and prevent them from 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 you know going to, uh, uh you know becoming sex workers or sort of relying on you know what at the time was viewed as less than savory well even now less than savory um sort of means of 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 getting by um and so in that case right physical culture was was that kind of intervention to create community but to also help women who were coming from rural areas into cities try and, and navigate that space and themselves um, in a way that was empowering, and also Christianizing as well, right? <laughs> it was. It was also still about, and you will do this all um, um, through through Christ, uh, uh, which is a, a, a long shot from where the YWCA is 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 now. So I think that you know, primarily that's what they were interested in. What my book argues. <laughs> right, is that um, a huge part of that was, was, in and this is early, right, eugenics is really something that, that hits its stride in the 20s. Um, but the, the seeds of the impulses of, of eugenics are really in all of these reform efforts that are incredibly concerned with women's young women's ability to reproduce that so many of the exercises so much of the rhetoric um was uh, sort of tacitly and implicitly and sometimes explicitly um still about making sure that these young women could give birth successfully um that, that that they could still be, and not only give birth successfully, that their bodies would be able to, to handle it, um, but that also, you know, inculcating sort of the values of motherhood on these women, right? There was never, it was never a, a sort of, hey, come and learn how to do physical culture, and you can actually, you know, find yourself a job. Although, you know, in women's physical culture, many of them did go off to become physical directors themselves, because it was so gender uh, segregated at the time. Um, But so much of it was about, you know, um, and I talk about this in the book, um, that when you when you really drill down, um, it often was tied explicitly or implicitly to bettering the white race, um, especially for women's physical culture.
1: Yeah, I, th- I mean, for me, that comes that came through uh, really clearly um, be- because you re I think you reiterated in a good way again and again that you know whether it's um, Dudley Allen Sargent's kind of looking at the improvement of you know women who could maybe afford to go and can um, go to upper class you know universities in the in the Northeast versus you know Mayhew and and. The YM uh, the YWCA in um, uh, Minneapolis, like we're we're seeing different this thing at different angles. And of course, um, one of your most fascinating chapters, uh, the the last kind of body chapter, looking at physical culture for indigenous women and girls in the U.S. Um, I think is really rich. Let let's turn. Although I, you said it's you say it's weird, but I think it was like weird, like a great wine weird. It was funky in a cool way. Um, your chapter on Del- Delsart, um, I was, I was digging on it. So um, maybe you can tell, I don't think like Del- a lot of people don't know about Americanized Delsart. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about what it is um, and how, uh, how it came to become popular in America and what is this steel McKay uh, guy doing anyway? <laughs> so,
0: yeah, man, and, and, I'll tell you, you know, um, um, as, a, as a side note before, before I say anything about, about Delsart, you know, in my part of the impetus behind focusing the book on whiteness actually came from one of my committee members when I defended my, my dissertation, who, you know, at, you know, read it and was like, this is great, and, and, and I'm, all, I'm, all, I'm all on board with you, but I just feel like when you say women, that actually you mean white women. And that that matters to your site in a way that you haven't really investigated it, um, and it like and that and it was one of those things. It was like, yeah, yeah, you're you're right, um, but I couldn't let it go. Uh, it it and and that is actually how I sort of turned to the the added chapters or, or the DelSart chapter from my dissertation, the DelSart chapter. Um, and um, the chapter on physical culture or lack thereof in um, Indigenous uh, reform schools, um, and and so the you know getting to Del's Start was was about in the sites that I had watching these these um, or seeing pictures um, and videos of of these women in white leotards, where I was like, look, art can it's so clear that these are white women and you're trying to make them even whiter, um, which is where I, I sort of like went into, into Del Sartre. And it's in part because, um, the physical culture sites that I began with, which is, like I said, Abby, Abby Mayhew, um, at the Minneapolis YWCA, and then Dudley Allen Sargent at Harvard and then, um, Bernard McFadden all over. Um, that, uh, Del Sartre, Americanized Del Sartre was a fundamental aspect of all of their approaches um, to to women's physical culture. And while Del Sartre has been talked about in scholarly circles, at least um, in in regards to its connection to dance, um, it's really poo-pooed <laughs> by sports historians as like, as the non, as the non-sport. I mean, I, I open up one of the chapters um, sort of talking about going to my first sports history conference and having this really big name scholar, um, as I'm showing these, uh, this video of, of, uh, a woman going through Delsart poses, you know, tell me at the end, you, you're talking about this, like it's exercise and that was not exercise. And that is part of why Americanized Delsart, I, I don't think it's really talked about in sports history because it is, it is sort of seen as, you know, some weird fad of the, the late nineteenth century that thankfully we've we've moved beyond. And the funny thing is that in theater, um, where Delsart was also super huge in terms of it was a it was a regular and and popular sort of actor training uh uh school of actor training, it is also poo-pooed by theater people who were just like, you know, all it did was create stilted uh, uh performances that were you know every anything but sort of realistic. Um and and I I tend to you know get really interested by those places where everybody disavows something. <laughs> Sports is disavowing it, theater is disavowing it, and the only people who sort of avowed it are are dance scholars. And then they they do so cautiously, right? Um, so Del So right, Del is was this French dude who uh, <laughs> came. Who actually was not interested in physical culture or exercise at all. Uh, he was really interested in how you could develop um uh vocal techniques mainly vocal techniques but also facial expressions um and and then gesture that how you could develop um a series of of movements that would align with the spiritual realm and cosmos in a way um that was um sort of symmetrical and natural so so for example you know he would he would sort of make these drawings of you know a face that was making a particular expression and then would overlay you know shapes from nature in order to prove that that particular expression was um aligned with the cosmos okay <laughs> so so income steel uh uh Mackay, who you know um works with Delsart in his in his final years. Um, and and they apparently all all of the sort of retellings of them meeting it was you know, people use like firework metaphors and, and all of this stuff. Um, and so Steele Mackay, you know, took all of these ideas back to the States and and was Steele Mackay was an actor. So he was most interested in the sort of gestural aspects of del um, And so he started to teach it, you know, very much in the way that we have all of these different kind of certificates that you can get in like acting <laughs> in different sort of schools of acting. Um, so he started to, to teach it as a kind of school of, of acting um, and movement and gesture Um, And then all of his students kind of took it in their own in their own directions, and it fractured. And, you know, this was long before you could like trademark, or they were interested in trademarking, you know, their their teaching techniques. So it just made its way into so many things like silent film. Um, you can see uh, sort of resonances of Del Sartre and Del Sartre movement in silent and silent films, um, modern dance. Uh, one of the ways that when people are like, what's Del Sartre? I'm like, do you know the music man? Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and I'm like, yeah, the, whole, the whole scene where they talk about one Grecian urn um, and they do it in togas, that is the sort of pop culture popular version of what Delsart is, right? Women in togas, um, sort of doing these stilted yoga-looking poses while uh reciting poems is 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 like the the down and dirty version of uh, uh what Delsart was
1: yeah for me I mean I read I read that at the beginning well, I read the beginning of that chapter and I thought, oh, good academic gossip. But then I also thought, you know, from the French, from a perspective of a French historian and looking at the the early part of the 20th century, um, you know, de, Delsart and dance fit very intimately into, you know, conversations about what women were, how women were supposed to participate in physical culture. Like you would never have fragmented out dance from, French female physical culture and into the forties, you can, like I my own research is on Vichy and you, into the, into the forties, you find del Sartre and official government publications on sport, <laughs> you know, in, in in magazines called like stadium, <laughs> things like that. So it, it's funny that it hasn't, that it, that it has its own history in the, in the historiography of sport, but you can see why yeah, maybe, I... um, yeah. Sorry.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I agree. And I, I think too, like, especially in like U S colleges um, Sartre was the way in which dance made its way into higher education. Um, and I, I think I, I talk about that a little bit in the book that, that, um, yeah, you know, the, the birth of women's colleges and, and the sort of um putting in physical culture as something they had to do every day happened simultaneously. Um, And dance and theater came later so delsart without that bridge um, without d- the delsart sort of bridge because delsart was being used in those physical culture classes um, you know i think i don't, do you get to dance um, i don't know i think i think it was it was really and there are other scholars right that 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 talk in depth and extensively um, about that
1: well, your next chapter does i mean in in some ways the delsart does work for you also a bit as a bridge, but your next chapter on, uh, Dudley Allen Sargent talks explicitly about kind of physical culture for women in university. So maybe you could tell us a bit about Dudley Allen Sargent and what was, um, you know, what was, uh, the, the interconnection between nature, science and kind of mim- mimetic exercise.
0: Sure. Yeah. So he's he's an interesting all all of these folks, right? I, I I um kind of adore them cautiously. Um. So he was a really interesting dude, right? He he is not who you would think would be at at Harvard, and I think it's incredibly important to look at that that you know he started by doing circus tricks um in and I think his uncle's basement in in Maine um and then somebody was like hey you're really good at those tumbling why don't you come in and teach some some physical education classes um and so he sort of built this reputation with 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 no like formal training whatsoever, um, and, and made his way to Harvard. Um, and he never felt like he belonged there. Um, and the departments and the, and the higher ups and the administration worked really hard to sort of also, you know, make him feel like maybe he, he didn't belong there. Um, but because he w- came from this background, he was really regularly sort of invested in, um uh trying to again prescribe sort of exercises that would that would help um not just harvard men um but what he was really known for was actually um this summer school that he taught at harvard that enrolled primarily women who wanted to be physical education physical culture teachers um and he used to go and actually teach um, physical culture classes like in Boston for like factory girls. Uh, uh, And, and it, again, excuse me, he was primarily interested in um, trying to come up with ways in which these working women um, and teachers uh, could come up with sort of prescriptions of exercises um, in order to make people become the sort of best physical versions of, of themselves. Um, But the, the wacky thing about Dudley Allen Sargent, the thing that, you know, when people are like, who is this guy and why do you write about him? I'm like, well, so he, he uh, had, Tens of thousands of measurements that he took and had other people take um, of college students, of uh, 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 sort of police academies, firefighters, tens of thousands of these cards that are at Harvard um, that take detailed measurements of people's bodies and not like the measurements that like, you know, if you were gonna sort of measure how your body changes over a workout, you would take, you know, your shoulders and your hips and your waist. No, this guy like took like, <laughs> you know, how far from, you know, the tip of your thumb to your wrist, um, you know, how far from from your shoulder blade to your elbow, um, and he accumulated all of this data. Uh, and, and said that he could, based on what your measurements were, prescribe a sort of set of exercises that would get you to this kind of ideal mean, not the average, but the mean, um, and, and change the way that your body was shaped. The wild thing about it is that he took all these measurements, he, um, accumulated them and then, uh, uh, made them into like, uh, I guess- averaged them and came up with like, well, I guess the mean, he came up with the mean and then he gave that mean from the the sort of men and the women, tens of thousands of, of uh, measurements to a sculptor and said, here, um, I want you to create a, you know, a sculpture um, based on these measurements. And then it was displayed at the 1893 um, Columbian Expo in Chicago. Um, and it created all of this debate, um, this picture and and it right, it was made, they were created to look like Greek statuary. So there's all kinds of sort of overlapping ways in which they're, tr- you know, trying to say, look, you know, building an idea of what is the American woman. And here are the measurements of tens of thousands of college women that we're going to make into this statue. Um, and he thought that it would be a, a really great, like, look, let's celebrate, <laughs> um, the American college woman. Um, and it actually created all of this debate because critics tended to think that, um, uh, she wasn't in very good shape. Um, and so, like, why wasn't she in good shape? And like, why, you know, uh, uh, and and people who were, you know, trying to argue against the corset at that point were like trying to mobilize the statue as a like, this is why women can't wear the corset. But then, people on the other side were like, no, this is what college does to women's bodies, and we can't let them go to college. It was just, uh, I don't think he really expected it to. To take off like like that, but that's one of those those things that he was sort of famous for.
1: The other thing I really liked, um, by the way, your book has a lot of like funny things in it. Um, <laughs> when I'm thinking about Sergeant, I'm now I'm all, only going to think about him sitting on a chair <laughs> on a on a high wire. Um, right. Oh the my other gosh. thing I really liked, yeah. The yeah. other thing I really liked about this chapter is um, you introduced this notion of uh, surrogation and how he's attempted to kind of like re, reintroduce um, rural values through kind of mem- these exercises that you can just do over and over again. Um, so you're not, you don't have to be working class to get the kind of the musculature of a, of a working class person. I found that to be a really interesting, interesting idea.
0: Yeah, and so many of our of our exercises still do that thing, right? So like there was there was one point where where that chapter I was going to write a whole chapter on the historiography of the squat. Um and I you, I was going to You must yeah.
1: do this. You have to do this. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs>
0: that I was going to be like, you know, if if I could if if I could trace back the the squat to to the gesture of wood chopping Um, which is, which is really what I think if you, and, and that's the, one of the examples that I, that I use, um, uh, that, you know, how many of our exercises that we do now that we don't even think about like the, you know, the squat or, you know, I just finished directing a show where they had to stretch all the time, like the butterfly stretch, right. All these stretches that we have these names for, like how many of them actually could be traced back to, what, the, what I think the squat was originally, which is, you know, was pulling from the actual action of chopping wood and then trying to borrow that for the city without actually doing the chopping of wood um, in order to make bodies that had the same fitness as their rural counterparts, um, while also... At the same time, like invalidating and talking about those rural counterparts as if they didn't exist anymore, as if they were some kind of relic of the past that didn't exist in this new metropolis, you know, metropolitan way of living. Um, and so, and and so the way, and and I think physical culture does this a lot. And this is how whiteness and gender um, and all of those those things make their way into sports is that they get sort of relabeled as as something else so you don't think you know when you're at the gym doing a squat you don't think that this is an appropriation of you know what was once sort of seen as as low class rural labor um uh but 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 it might be
1: <laughs> yeah to- totally and by the way you absolutely have to do that now and I want to read an article on <laughs> The, the historiography <laughs> and the exerciseography of the squat. I, I guess that sounds great. Sweet, of I'll get right on. You do really well. <laughs> yeah, let's get right on that. <laughs> one, one of the things I really love about your book, actually, is how it how it explains that tension really well. Um, that tension between kind of the celebration of the quote unquote natural, but also the the a Fear of the natural and and you see that a lot in your chapter um, on Abby Shaw uh, Mayhew where on one hand You know, there's this sense that Obviously quote-unquote women women are Connected to the carnivalesque and the grotesque and we we need we need to be wary of kind of untrammeled female naturalness, which is just chaos and yet on the other hand, like what we need is naturalistic exercise so we can get the benefits of the, of that naturalness without the, the unrestrainedness of it, right? So actually what we need is kind of like, oh, you use a better term. I'm not able to describe it as well as you do in the book. Uh, but you, you, like self-control and self-management become central to the notion of, of, of both kind of what you're called social motherhood, but also white whiteness itself, like whiteness itself becomes about self-management. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about kind of Abby Shaw, may you, what was she doing? Why you fell in love with her? What, and, and, and explain to us uh, your, your, um, your idea of social motherhood.
0: Sure. Yeah, well, you it, you know, that whole idea of like, cool, chopping wood is, is great and adapting that for the city works really well when we're talking about masculine bodies, um, where that kind of rural labor is masculinized, but like that. Conjuring of nature becomes a little bit more problematic um on on feminized bodies, on women's bodies because um nature is a little bit more complicated and 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 the sort of assumption of of women and nature um at the time was was a really. Um, complex um, problem uh, that physical culture was supposed to solve. On one hand, right. So, so right. The the interesting thing about this period of time, um, and Shannon Jackson, who's a I cite her a lot, right talks about, you know, figures like Jane Addams and these these, you know, first wave feminists who um, were out there and saying, like, yes, like women, you need to take charge. You need to be the managers. You need to have your job. You need to do all these things. Um, But we're still mobilizing the rhetoric of domesticity in order to sort of validate that. Right. Like you can do all these things. But um, so, so they were saying, you know, women should go out and be, you know, in the city and, and sort of, uh, work for reform, um, because women are best suited to do that reform because they know how to run a household. So it was, um, uh, a lot of the ways in which physical culture mobilized the rhetoric of domesticity, um, uh, uh, sort of mobilize nature, not in terms of like, yes, women should go out and run through the woods, and um, but in terms of like. N- you know their women's nature Is to be maternal um, And that is how they Justified to um, A lot of, of these Exercises that they were asking women To do so Abby, Abby Shaw Mayhew Is wild because Is wonderful and wild um, Because she you know at a time When Delart was super popular And she was really good at Delsart um, uh, And she taught Delsart But she also like she started Women's sports at the University of Wisconsin Wisconsin. Um, she was all about um, basketball um, um, and and believed that women should be allowed to compete, which is something that even Dudley Allen Sargent was like, no, 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 no. Women should not be involved in sports. They can be physically active, but they shouldn't be involved in sports. And Abby Shaw Mayhew was like, no, they should be doing all of the things. Um, and so when she was in, in Minneapolis, Um, She did, you know, gym work, um, uh, write sort of like women's exercise classes, that, that all of these other folks did. Um, but she came from Wellesley, um, and Wellesley already had these, had these sort of outing groups. So she would, she would have women, um, have a rowing club and a bicycling club, and they would do, um, basketball tournaments, um, uh, friendly basketball tournaments, (laughs) um, which I guess took the competition part out of it, like all over the city. And so there are these, um, articles from, the time that sort of describe these women in really sort of grotesque and outrageous ways that, that, you know, in her reports, Abby Shaw Mayhew is like super proud of, um, but also, right, was being pressured to sort of justify um, the ways in which this outrageous sort of bodily autonomy that was all over the streets of uh, and lakes of Minneapolis um, wasn't just, you know, kind of girls gone wild at the end of the 19th century. Um, And the way that she justified that was through a really hefty Rhetoric of domesticity, um, a really hefty rhetoric that that this is how women learn to be closer to God and to and to Christ, and that this was how they could sort of envision their Christ likeness Um, and the way that that was then tied explicitly to their whiteness um was was also sort of a part of that that justification um so she's she's a a confounding figure because on one hand you know she she absolutely falls into into the sort of same bucket as like jane adams and 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 the that first wave of feminist reformers um who are really pushing the boundaries of what was you know acceptable femininity you know and then on the other hand she's saying things like you know at the end of the day this is about uh, uh furthering the race this is about you know making women better um uh uh you know house housekeep you know b- better managers of their of their homes and what's interesting about her and i've also haven't quite found enough evidence to to like say this say this but um she never married. Um, and there's at least in one of the cens- two censuses, um, she had was living with a female companion in her later life. Um, so I think that there's also, again, I need to do <laughs> all of the research, but I, I do, I, I have some suspicions that she might have also been queer, um, which then just really makes all of this stuff even more complicated and confounding as <laughs> somebody who, who, uh, uh, is, is kind of loves her.
1: Yeah. I, I, obviously I caught the reference at the end of the chapter to her living with a companion. And I have to admit in reading the McFadden chapter next, I also caught like a hint of queerness. Cause I'm thinking about the kinds of phys- the kind of German, the link between uh, homo social- sociality in Germany and these physical cultural magazines—how they were like an early way for ger- German queer communities to express queerness in public—and I was like, "Oh, is that what's going?" Is like, but then you read about uh, Bernard McFadden's like third wife and her seventh childbirth, and he's making her jump off a 46-foot cliff. You're like, "What is going on here?" <laughs> um, So i have to admit i was (laughs) i was i was raised i was wondering (laughs) that a little bit in the next chapter as well i these two chapters together for me really um were rich because of the way in which they both kind of deal with this question of female physical perfectibility and kind of the notion of the the kind of ideal female body type and so i I wondered if you could talk a little bit about um you know maybe a little bit about mcfadden and what was who is bernard mcfadden and why um and suddenly in this chapter we get a lot about pregnancy and childbirth so i wonder if you could talk about mcfadden in, in, in childbirth and pregnancy
0: yeah so he made it just super explicit right like there were ways in which um sergeant and and um, abby mayhew you know linked sort of uh uh to women you know in childbirth and women as mothers but like it wasn't central and for bernard mcfadden that was central like the ideal woman for him was a mother um and uh yeah so he is he i think i mean i described him he's been described in so many different ways he's been described as like the pt barnum of physical culture um he's also been described by folks that i know as sort of a proto trump um he ran for president um later in his life you know he was uh, you know a sort of media tycoon like one of the first media tycoons before the media was the media um and, you know, he was the supreme showman, um, like, you know, he was doing evil Knievel kind of stunts, like before that was the cool thing. Um, you can point to so many other physical culture folks like like Jack LaLanne as as sort of down the kind of evolutionary tree of physical culturists that that starts with Bernard Bernard McFadden. Um, but. <clears throat> And he wrote um, because he was right a media tycoon. You know, he wrote all of these magazines. He wrote the Encyclopedia of Physical Culture, um, but none of it was like <laughs> right. He he had a beginnings very similar to Dudley Allen Sargent. He you know uh, uh, grew up in the in the Ozarks. Like uh, I don't know why I always think when I when I listen to that first song from Hamilton about where Alexander Hamilton comes from, I'm always like, oh, that's like Bernard
1: McAdams <laughs> too.
0: Um, that, you know, he, he can't, he, he didn't have, like, he lost his parents. He was sort of on his own. He didn't have an education. Um, you know, while Dudley Allen Sargent was showing his statues, uh, at the, at the Columbian Expo, Bernard McFadden was like demonstrating a rower. Um, so, you know, he also had those working class roots. Um, but, uh, and he also did like amazing things. Like there's, there's evidence that, you know, Bernard McFadden was the first person to bring yoga um, to the United States. Um, he was an ardent vegetarian. He said like amazing things. Like, you know, you shouldn't just eat meat and bread and butter. Um, you should have whole grains and you should eat vegetables. And people at the time were like, what? You're a quack. Um, so, so he did all these really amazing things. Um, but then, you know, he was borderline and sometimes not borderline abusive towards his wives. Um, he was certainly sort of emotionally distant and, and potentially neglectful of, of, of his children um, and all because, you know, he just believed that his beliefs about physical culture were true and so his first well I think actually he was she was his second wife uh Mary um was like you know had won was a champion swimmer in the UK um and when he he married her she was like 19 and he was like uh way too old I can't think of exactly how old he was at the time but um <laughs> And then you know uh, his whole plan, right, was was that they were going to be the world's physical culture couple, and so she talks. She has she has a sort of salacious um, autobiography um, called Dumbbells and Carrot Strips that is just. Fascinating, um, and and she talks about the fact that she understood that her job was was to come on board and sort of make babies, um, and and she did really quickly. And and one of the main things that he did when they were on tour together right after they got married um, is that he used to um, sort of have her jump uh, off of a table onto his abs. Um, he made her, and I tried, I tried, let me tell you, I, I tried so hard to find evidence or some kind of record of, of this dive off of the pier while she was eight months pregnant, but I just, man, I could not find it. But she talks about, you know, being eight months pregnant and, and he forced her as a sort of, uh you know, demonstration of her virile, you know, sort of hardcore amazing pregnancy to jump off of this pier into the waters at Brighton beach. Um, And she talks about how she was terrified, right? She was terrified that this was going to do harm to the baby, do harm to her. um, But, but she did it, she did it anyway. Um, And then once she had all of these, these uh, children, um, which uh much I think to Bernard's uh dismay open dismay at times uh it, he she had all girls <laughs> um then he he toured them around so then they became this sort of physical culture family um and and so again um you know yes he was interested in exercises um but he was as interested in exercises combined with diet combined with, uh sleeping with an open window when it's 20 degrees outside and snow baths Mm -hmm. and all of these sort of um bizarre ways of living that for him physical culture wasn't just a sort of series of exercises that you go and work out you know for him physical culture was an entire way of being in the world and and for him that being in the world was firmly focused on, if you're a man, your job is to go out and reproduce. And if you're a woman, your job is to make babies. Um, And so much of his sort of uh he has an entire 1000 page uh book about like these are all the steps you need to do in order to be a good mom and how to get pregnant and how to give birth and how to take care of your baby um he was writing you know uh what to expect when you're expecting uh <laughs> long long before um those kinds of self-help manuals were out there
1: yeah so your, your uh, book for me shannon does such a great job of kind of tracing out that line from the late well yeah late 19th century through to kind of the eugenics movement of the 1920s and, and really um, pays special attention to the role that physical culture plays um, in trying to shape women's bodies in particular but then you pose a question in your conclusion I think that really sharpens the whole book, which is you, you say, like, can this white supremacist roots of physical culture be challenged? And in some ways, you're trying to look at that in chapters, uh, your chapter six as well, Exercise for assimilation, where you're looking at indigenous women. So I wonder if you I mean, because that seemed to be where you where you land. like, okay, the the so what of this? why this is important? Why people who maybe aren't interested in the reform or the Progressive Era. Why they should read it? Um, is this and it's a huge question. I mean, I was shocked when I started reading your book, and I was like, "Wait, this is starting with a white, like a white supremacist gym in today." <laughs> uh, so I wonder if you could, you could, d- did you end up answering that question for yourself? And uh, what, what, what should we all be doing? I guess.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think. I, I mean, I think that's really the crux of of. Of what of what my next project is and I think that it's about especially now right again I, I think that the the sort of world that I wrote most of this book in and the world we're in now seem um, very different um, but the that question is, came from a place of, you know, in theater, we have a, a huge sort of subfield that is theater for social change. Um, and how can you use performance and theater techniques in order to sort of go out and affect cultural and social change in, in the world? Um, and, and part of that question was like, so what is the equivalent in sports? And I'm not, I still am not sure that there is, is something. Um, but I point to a couple of examples in that last chapter. Um, and I do think too, that, that a lot of that has shifted sort of in the pandemic, um, uh, a talk that I gave, um, like a year ago was about how sports, um, and athletes were sort of given, a, an ability or at least took on um, being more political um, during the pandemic, like, you know, the the sort of protests, the, you know, um, wearing, you know, certain uh, uh, things on their uniforms or like T-shirts to, to warm up, um, the explicit linking of the NBA with the Black Lives Matter movement, Um, I think that, that there are ways in which sports and physical culture has shifted. And, and also like one of the, um, I talk about a couple of different um, um, sort of uh, physical fitness gurus now who are mobilizing a lot of that physical fitness work in order to kind of talk about how it can help you become um, a sort of a revolutionary or, or a radical, um, and it's not like this is the first time, right? Um, uh, there's there's so many examples of the ways, especially in like Germany and Czechoslovakia and like the Sokol movement, of how physical culture has been mobilized before in order to kind of further a political cause. Um, but I do still wonder. Um, you know, what What exactly does sports or physical fitness for social change look like? And so a lot of what I'm looking at now is about trying to think about what, what that might look like um, and how it has to change necessarily to um, and this is where Judith Butler comes back in, um, in the sort of world that, that, that we're in right now, where it just seems like, you know, it's climate change and it's genocide and it's, um, you know, uh, this sort of constant barrage of, you know, what do we pay attention to? And when we say social justice, um, what are we talking about? Because uh, we're kind of talking about all of it. Um, but how does how can sports and theater sort of talk to each other and borrow from each other in this you know pandemic moment and in this sort of yet again you know where white nationalism is is on the rise in so many places? Um, what is it that theater and sports do really well um, that can help further that cause of social justice?
1: Well, I certainly was really interested in your your discussion of the shift towards community and, and a kind of more critical approach to physical culture as performance as a way to challenge that, that Foucaultian notion of governmentality, like actually if we get down on the grassroots and we, and we really think about what we're doing and the reasons we're doing it in a, in a critical way, then we can challenge the, the kind of racial and gendered underpinnings of our sports systems, I thought that that's true. That that strikes me as very true, and not at all the kind of. Um, there's a lot of I think rah-rahing a sport as a way of bringing people together, but actually, it only really works to undermine the 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 base, the racial and gendered bases of of society if we if we do it on purpose, right? <laughs>
0: Yeah, so I did. It. Yeah, yeah, and and like theater, theater theorizes about this a lot, right? That that um, you know, that you know, yay, we love entertainment. We we love you know uh, our Broadway shows, but like that there is there is an underside to bringing people in to see a show and only entertaining them or only sort of getting them to forget about their troubles. Um, and so, right, a lot of avant-garde work, a lot of theater for social change work, um, is about trying to undo that sort of like come in here and forget all your troubles and just have fun. Uh, and so, I, I, I wonder, you know, what would what would that what would that look like um, if it, you know, for an audience for a sporting event, um, you know, what how how could you make um, you know, a a sporting audience sort of use that communal space, um, where everybody feels linked regardless of, of, you know, ideology, um, in order to actually get them to think together to make the world, the world better.
1: Well, it, it, it sounds like this is your, some of the bases for your next project. Is that, is that yeah
0: yeah yeah i'm i'm starting um (laughs)
1: well
0: yeah super small i was like oh no yeah trying to think about like how community and collectivity which i think are are sports and theater's superpowers um that that those two things that's what they do best um you know bring people together and and feel that sense of like togetherness amongst strangers um, you know, how, how can that be mobilized in a way that, that is, is fruitful for everybody involved in that, um, in that process. So I'm looking at, um, and I've been doing, I just finished, um, directing a play called the wolves, which is a, um, on campus, which is a, a play about a women's soccer team, <laughs> um, uh, women's football team. And, uh, uh, it was it was kind of amazing because it was also the very first play that that we did in person um, um after doing you know only only digital stuff. So the way that you know community and and sort of what happens you know when you put a collective together um was just like I don't know cranked up like five levels in this show because we were just so happy to be together on a daily basis and trying to make theater again. Um, uh, but I also think that there's, you know, lots of, there's just so much in the pandemic, um, on the sports and sort of physical fitness. And because so many that, because our superpowers are getting people together, um, that we lost our superpowers, you know, over, <laughs> over the pandemic. Right. Um, so what, what is, what does an NBA game look like without fans? Well, now we know. Um, you know, and, and what do we do with that? I mean, can you really call sports sports if there aren't live fans there? Can you call theater theater if there aren't fans there? Um, like we we've all, you know, sort of gone back to that place of like the roots of our definition of who we think we are as sports and theater makers. Um, uh, and in that place, you know, I think that there's a huge opportunity to rethink being more equitable about our definitions as we move forward?
1: Well, I I hope so. Thank you so much for joining me today, Shannon.
0: Thank you, Keith. This was fun.
1: We've been talking today to Shannon Walsh. She's an associate professor of theater history at Louisiana State University, and she's the author of a book I really think you all should read, Eugenics and Physical Culture Performance in the Progressive Era watch whiteness work out. Although, maybe for its second edition, it'll be in the reform era. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Thank you again, Shannon. You've been listening to uh, New Books in Sports, a channel on the New Books Network. I am Keith Rathbone coming to you from Macquarie University. Thank you very much for listening.